Hello and welcome to the A-Form Show, the premier podcast for all things architecture and design across the MENA region. Welcome to your tribe. Today's episode is supported by Skystruct, the groundbreaking construction and project management solution that's absolutely turning heads in the industry. They are bringing together architects, engineers, project managers, procurement, and essentially any stakeholder onto one singular platform. Yes, clients are included. Skystruct is genuinely changing the game. Its tailored modules for construction management, inventory, labor, cost management helps streamline the chaos of construction projects. They are rolling out very soon in the buy, but you as a listener can get in early, drop us an email at hello at aform.studio and find out how Skystruct is the future and it is here today. Now, let's get into the episode. Welcome to the show, everyone. This week, we have a guest, which honestly, I normally write introductions for our guests, but you might be the very first one that I was completely intimidated to write an introduction for, just given the length, breadth and depth of the career that you've had, which I think is just insane for most architects. So I'm not even going to try and give you an introduction. I'll let the guests know who you are, and I would love for you to kind of walk us through your journey. We are joined by none other than the man, the myth, the legend himself, Mr. Peter Jackson. If you have anything to do with architecture in the Middle East or specifically in the city of Dubai or the city of Sharjah, there is no way that you do not know this man or any of the work that he's done. I am going to very humbly hand over the floor to you. And if you could walk our guests who perhaps have not heard of you through your career, who is Peter Jackson? What have you worked on? What inspires you? Well, thank you, Alan. Um, A little overwhelming. (laughs) Yes, I do have many years of experience now under my belt. I studied at the Bartlett in the late 60s. I first started working for an architect about the age of 13, sort of school holidays and weekends, Saturday mornings. So it was something I knew very early on, you know, it was the career that I wanted. I was lucky enough to be admitted to the Bartlett School at a very interesting time when it had just changed from being a classical school to a a very environmentally aware and more scientific, taking a scientific approach to architectural education. And it was very interested in the process of education itself. It was trying to introduce a higher number of women into the profession than was usual at that time. And uh, had some amazing teachers to name but two. Raina Bannum taught me architectural history. And uh, I worked under, my last project last year was with Nick Grimshaw, you know, it, uh, well, one of my last years with Nick Grimshaw, um, who I have a huge regard for still to this day. And I was able to meet him when he went to get his gold medal wow. uh, a couple of years back. While I was at the bar and doing my year out, I made my first trip to Dubai in January 72. I was doing my practical training year and I was actually very disappointed by some of the experience I was having. And I was almost ready to give up architecture and thinking of becoming an archaeologist or something. So my father at the time was a civil engineer working in Dubai. So I came out and visited him for take a break from and get my head back together again. And I finished helping the partner of John Harris Architects in the Dubai office on the Rashid Hospital site. And Tony, Tony Lodge passed me all the bits and pieces of jobs that you know he, people were bringing to him that he hadn't got time to do himself because he was trying to build a hospital get a hospital built. And he was very grateful to have some assistance. 
And so I worked with Tony for about six weeks doing all these, and I got all my enthusiasm for architecture back. The last night before I returned to UK and, and the second part of my field experience here, he invited me across to meet John Harris, who was passing through. And John Harris offered me a job as soon as I finished my studies. So I didn't have to look for, look for work. I chose for my diploma work, my final project, I chose a low-cost housing scheme at Alwassel. And that resulted in me meeting Dr. Anne Coles, who had been out in 68, 71. She'd been in the, in the UAE with her husband, who was a diplomat. And uh, then I joined John Harris's office. And he would send me here to look after the office when the partner was on leave, which was when I did in 1974, I took the opportunity to, to measure the wind tower house with a letter of introduction to one of the families in the Bastakir from Anne Coles. That was a very special experience. Both looking after the office was rather terrifying. I was not a qualified architect at that point. And the fact that John Harris trusted me to do that. And every evening, spending a couple of hours measuring a beautiful old house that I went in to measure one wind tower. That was the job. <laughs> uh, but the house was in an architectural language, which I partly understood because there was, a, there was an innate classicism to it. Uh, but it was in a, in a materiality that I had no experience of before. And of course, the wind towers were something very striking and you know, fascinating for a young architectural graduate. It took me a year to draw up the drawings in my spare time because I was now doing my part three, preparing for those exams, attending, the, attending lectures, working during the day and, and have, trying to have a little bit of social life as well. Right. And uh, John Harris very kindly supported the first publications of, um, got an article in the Architectural Review about the, these houses. Nobody knew where Dubai was in those days. You know, Dubai, it was a town of 75,000 people, Sharjah, probably 20, you know, right. 20,000. And it was a very, very small and nobody really knew in London. As soon as I qualified, by this point, I thought rather then coming straight to Dubai, which was really my plan, was come and work in Dubai. I would actually just like to have an experience working somewhere else, which didn't have oil, which wasn't able to solve its own problems with its own resources. And I was given an introduction to an architect in Zambia. I met the architect in London. He was a little bit crazy. We got on immediately. <laughs> As you do. And I jumped from... London, working in the Middle East, to Central Southern Africa, totally different world. I went for two years before planning to come back. I stayed in Africa for 26 years. Right. I worked with Ron Kirby, Montgomery Oldfield Kirby in Lusaka. I learned some really important lessons. I learned the base architectural lessons, I think, that have guided me through much of the rest of my career. Yes. Certainly professionalism about being involved in the profession, being involved in architectural education, editing an architectural magazine for the institute, very small institute, lecturing at the university, introducing students to the idea of you know, studying architecture right. and helping select those for places in the UK, right. sponsored places, and building significantly useful buildings for the community with very little money, with a minimum of resources, both materials, there weren't an awful lot of building materials available, and certainly there was no extravagant. They really had to be, it was almost like building with Lego. Right. The, the concrete block being Absolutely. the Lego. So you had to make architecture with, with light and color and space, 
rather than fancy materials. Yep. There were architects using fancy materials, and I always thought they were out of place. When I'd gone back to Zambia and seen those buildings still standing, I still think they're out of place and inappropriate. Right. <laughs> yes. Years later, decades later. Decades later, yes. Yeah. So those those skills that I learned there and working with impoverished communities, yes. you know, I took with me when I crossed the border after Zimbabwean independence, full of optimism at starting in a new country, starting a practice in a new country. Again, being able to contribute architecturally to the community. Obviously, that sort of work also requires commercial work alongside it. And you build up from scratch. And immediately after independence, there was a, there was a great requirement for training for all the ex-combatants who'd been out, right. Zandler and Zipra, who'd been outside the country and lost their school education and certainly you know, any advanced education. So one of the great priorities after, after uh, independence in Zimbabwe was were building training facilities and we converted tobacco barns into <laughs> into student hostels on farms we right. you know we built very low cost schools sometimes we just built a roof right. where the schools you know could build underneath and i through my career i, I counted up at some point i designed over 30 schools wow a varying from you know sort of proper you know high normal Western standard secondary school down to really simple rural facilities. I think the other thing that I, I really learned in um, in my own practice in Zimbabwe, you know, was I was, I suppose then I was at the peak of my career and, and really learning, learning the design process. And I think my confidence as a designer really only grew around about the time I was around 40, 40 plus. And I was much more confident with the work I was doing. We, we were doing work in Mozambique, little, again, training um, facilities, working with Red Barna, the Norwegian Save the Children, immediately after the Mozambican Civil War. We, we had an office in uh, Francistown, a very small town in, in northern Botswana. Um, I learned to fly which was an, it was an excuse really to learn to fly. <laughs> I always wanted to fly and uh, to get, help me get around. And we finished up doing some substantial uh, government projects at the end, and which helped contribute to you know the office viability of running an office, um, small and large jobs. Uh, and I had a number of partners through those years, and particularly my last partner, Tony Wilson. You know, I, I learned a great deal from. He was an excellent designer. Now retired, he is an excellent designer. You know, that was a tremendous experience even before I arrived back in the UAE. Sadly, the political and economic situation in Zimbabwe deteriorated very rapidly in the late 90s and the farm occupations. And I no longer felt it was safe for my family in the long term from a security situation or for an economic situation for the future. Something yep. happened to me. So my wife... Uh, and I decided to come and look at Dubai again. So I came back for the first time since 1975. I uh, came back in 2001, September 2001, a momentous month, you might recall. Yep. And my wife was quite was impressed. She felt very safe, which we didn't at home in Harare. Right. So uh, that was when we made the move back. One of the other things that I got really involved with in Zimbabwe was preservation of historic buildings. I finished up chairing committees, museum committees, and being a historic buildings advisor. I was an expert witness in the High Court on a building which ultimately was demolished, although 
it was saved in the in the court ruling, but mm -hmm. eventually it didn't survive the economic pressures right. of being redeveloped. So I learned a great deal of that about conservation and, and helped rewrite with a town planner. The two of us rewrote the historic buildings legislation and it got incorporated. It was eventually fully incorporated into the Harare Combination Master Plan. So that was important. And I was involved with the renovation of a number of of important old buildings, including moving one from one side of a, a city to the other side of the city and rebuilding it, a corrugated iron timber frame building and extending it. So I, I had to learn by doing the essence of conservation, you know, and how do you integrate new and old successfully? There were no sort of rules then in those days in out where we were. So you had to sort of work it out very responsibly and it was a responsibility, you know, were you doing it right? Were you using the right materials? There was very little to refer to, but I think we did a, a number of important projects and particularly those regulations. Unfortunately, the economic situation, again, this collapsed economy of Zimbabwe, the first victim, of course, were the old buildings and the roads, you know, the, the roads were full of potholes and the old buildings didn't stand a chance. You know, they just went on deteriorating because of costs. So I haven't been back to see how it is now. In some ways, I too much emotion involved right. in it. I, I don't really want maybe, to. Maybe you don't want to go. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I don't want to go. Because coming, coming back to the UAE, you know, all those years later was an, a really interesting experience. The first couple of years, I found it very difficult being employed, having been in my own practice. Yeah, I can um, imagine. Yeah. It wasn't easy and it didn't work. And then I joined Brian Johnson and had a very positive experience working with uh, Godwin Austin Johnson, enjoyed it very much. And we worked together until 2007 when I was offered a job in the ruler's office, Sharjah, where I've been ever since as an architect advisor, initially primarily to museums and then very involved in the heritage work. And then slowly, I, most of my work for the last 10 years has been with the Environmental Authority and some Sharjah museums. That's been an enormous privilege and very inspiring, you know, to be able to work directly, you know, with His Highness the Ruler, Sheikh Sultan bin Mohammed Al-Qasimi. His passion for history, for culture, education, science and good architecture is has been really exciting and the fact you know that I, you know I'm, I'm still there at this stage in my career shows you know that it's it's a value to him that right. that he cares so over these past past 16 years i never thought i would be a civil servant but these, in these past 16 years in this advisory role you know i've seen many projects working with some really interesting architects and firms Dabar Architects, Hopkins Architects, Bureau Happold. And we've done really, I think there's been some very interesting work in Sharjah and not just from my office, the Sharjah Arts Foundation has been working in parallel, producing some very impressive work with Mona Almosfi and uh, Sharuk, of course, working with Fosters at the House of Wisdom. And I think Sharjah now has a very impressive body of work that is serious architecture. Yep, yep. I think I I completely resonate with that. I think, I mean, anyone who's obviously been here for a significant period of time knows that Sharjah always has sort of been the cultural hub, if you may, of the entire country. And I think if you look at the architecture, not just the newer buildings, but even the older ones, I remember as a child growing up in Sharjah that a couple of buildings really stood out. And <laughs> as a child, I used to always refer to the, I mean, I suppose what is now still called the Flying Saucer Building. As a child, I used to call it the Spaceship Building. And 
and I remember it quite fondly. And of course, there's there's a host of projects like you've mentioned, which I've opened now. I think I agree with you about the flying saucer. I, I always liked it. It was yeah. a landmark. When I used to get, when I first would visit Sharjah, when I still lived in Dubai, I would always get lost. If I came across the flying saucer, I at least knew roughly where I was. Yes, like, the right. flying saucer roundabout. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and again, that's a, a project that's been renovated by Manuel Musfi. And yeah. I think that, uh, and the Sharjah Arts Foundation. Um, and I think it's a stunning landmark. And although it's a very tiny little building. Exactly. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's one of those places that I just always get a kick every time I drive past it. True. It's beautifully integrated with its landscape into, into the urban fabric. Absolutely. And it's there. It's a wonderful little resource in the community. Yeah. Um, yeah. Visually, it's exciting. It's as exciting as probably when it was built. True. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. So, I mean, definitely Sharjah has, you know, like you said, a very good body of architecture at the moment. So I was trying to distill the career that you've had and the experience that you've had, trying to distill it down to a singular question almost to basically answer something which is a bit existential, which is when you came to the country in the 70s, architectural identity is probably something which maybe was still forming or maybe there was, but wasn't particularly articulated per se. And of course, fast forward, you know, 50 years, the country's in a completely different place. And as an architect that works in this country, it's becoming a very critical question to identify, for lack of a better expression, a contemporary vernacular. Because architects obviously want to design for context. We want to design for place. And there, you know, I mean, obviously there are things like, you know, the wind towers and passive cooling and courtyard housing and so on. And there are obviously buildings also that implement this, especially in areas like you spoke about, like the Bastakia, obviously very clear examples of where these work, but kind of interpreting that for the modern age, if you may, with materiality, with technology, for example, I'm wondering is, I mean, maybe it's a silly question, but is there such a thing as a contemporary vernacular or, you know, is that, is that how I, I'd like to sometimes call it an oxymoron because it doesn't really work with each other maybe, but I'd love to know what your thoughts are. Yeah. It's, it's difficult, isn't it? Because if you look at Dubai, it's created a lot of, it's, it's a fact, it's got a style handbook based on the Bastakir and yes. Shindaga. Uh, the st Dubai municipality has got these published handbooks of style guides. And so you see these multi-story buildings with wind towers on top, which obviously hide water tanks and services. They don't, they're not wind towers, of course. Yeah. And balconies in the Bastakia style. Yeah. And they don't work. At all. They are, because the building form is not, it's the building form is wrong. Right. I think what the, the important thing about vernacular architecture is that it, it works because it's, it's similar. There's a similarity. There's a common commonality of language across a whole range of buildings in juxtaposition. Buildings respect each other. Hmm. Some of them want to outdo each other slightly, and they're more decorative. Others, yeah. others are more humble. But there's a there is a common language and a coherence. And I remember my first, my very first visit to Dubai in '72, and driving around the the Bastakir was a roundabout, and it was complete in those days. Half of it hadn't been demolished, and it was like an island. It was like a whole town in itself, and it was quite daunting because it it, it stood out. You couldn't see one the difference between one house and another. It was like a fortress. 
that had a real urban integrity. And I, I wondered at that. I really, it impressed me so much. And you couldn't go very far in it. Well, you know, little boys would throw stones at you and they keep, you know, they're protecting their <laughs> sisters and their, <laughs> and their right. mothers from people like me, foreigners. And similarly in the souk, there was a great integrity about the souk. But it, you see, all of that's one and two story building. I mean, you know, in the, in the Hadramaut, of course, the Yemen, they take them much higher. But, and I've seen the tower houses in Morocco, which are very impressive. It's a language that's established over a very long time, and it's in, inevitably it's architecture without architects. Right. So when you get architects involved, you know, and you start playing with interior design on the outside of the buildings. Right. And, you know, taking these elements and sticking them on. So you're trying to create some sense of cultural identity. I understand what the objective is, but I fundamentally I don't think it works. I think... The taller buildings that I look at in Dubai are the ones that are really well designed. And yeah. there were, you know, there was a city tower too, I think, in, on Sheikh Zayed Road, which I think was a really nicely designed building. Yep. The Emirates Towers, very yep. elegantly designed. The important thing is that the buildings don't always shout, look at me. They respect their neighbors. Yeah. You know, when you look at, for example, you look at Paris or you look at Georgian London. You know, there's a great harmony between the buildings. Right. The, the set of sort of set of rules about streetscape. True. That's really important. I think that's that's where Dubai falls down because it's just one series of look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, and it's a real hodgepodge. Yeah. It's a one interesting thing I think the architecture of Sharjah, if you like, the government, the corporate architecture of Sharjah, the government architecture of Sharjah which has been very much dictated by the ruler. It started with the blue souk in the 70s, Al-Majara Al Al souk, which became the yeah. Islamic Museum, you know, and the university city. And all of the government buildings along the creek and on the roundabouts, the cultural square and so on, there is a common language between those buildings. You, you might not like it, but I do like it. And I think and I notice that tourists always stop and take photographs in Cultural Square where my office is. So obviously people do like it. It looks Islamic. It looks Arab. It's very classical. It's it's eclectic. It draws from it draws from India. It draws from uh, Cairo. It draws from Damascus. Draws from Baghdad. You know the traditions. So it's a it's a it's a very eclectic Islamic architecture. It's a modern, right, Islamic, but it is very coherent and it gives Sharjah. An identity which is completely different to that of Dubai. And in a way, by marking our main public squares, by marking the edge of the creek, by the city center, by creating university city, you know, there is a there is a language that permeates through Sharjah. You know you're in Sharjah. True. Um, True. And I think that's that was never done with a sense of, you know, let's let's copy you know, the local vernacular, everything. That was a, that was a vision at, a, at another level. And I, I think one of the great successes of the urban design in, in Sharjah, and that's, that's very much, you know, being dictated, you know, by His Highness. He, and yet he puts up with all the modern bits and pieces I insert <laughs> <laughs> with my projects. <laughs> they're, they're different, but they are, you know, and that, because they're context driven, especially those in the environment, you know, I, those buildings, I, sometimes they, you want them to disappear or you want them to be dramatic in their landscape, but they have to fit. True. True. So, true. I think, I think you've, you've touched upon an, an interesting topic, which is buildings kind of blending in the environment, so to speak. I completely agree. I think Dubai has 
I mean, the number of briefs that I've received and I've in no means worked for as long as anyone has probably, but the number of briefs that just come with, you know, iconic. I'm going to say that's the word. You know, that's the word. That's, isn't it an appalling word? Yeah. I mean, by definition, how can every project be iconic? You know, I mean, it. I mean, it's a bit of, and I find it very strange having to explain this to clients, you know, saying, and funnily enough, I think it, it's gone so far down, you know, one extreme that buildings that kind of stand out now are buildings doing the exact opposite. Yes. Buildings kind of almost taking a step back from the file, you know, kind of giving a lot of public space, not being loud, visually loud with, you know, materiality or things like that. The very mellow, subtle buildings are now the ones which are quote unquote successes, both for clients, for architects and so on, which which I find quite strange. You know, it's 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 so polarized almost on, you know, both ends. There are two contemporary buildings in Abu Dhabi that uh, have impressed me. One, of course, is the Louvre. Right. I have never seen a conceptual, an outrageous conceptual sketch <laughs> as, a, as I saw the model when that, when Sadiat Island was first exhibition yes, was on yes, you know, yes. 15 years ago or longer, even when they yes. had that exhibition down there and said, this is what we're going to do. And yeah. Jean Nouvel's building, I thought, how the hell are they going to build that? Right. And they did. Right. And it's kept, it's got the freshness of that sketch, you know, the, the dome. And my only criticism is all that steel. <laughs> it's a lot of steel. There's a lot of steel, too much steel, and it's all exposed to really harsh environmental, salty, corrosive conditions. So yep. good luck. But it is the idea of the, of the little, Af uh, little Arabian town underneath this protective sun shield is, is, is delightful. And it really it works. Right. Apart from the fact there's a damn nice exhibition in there. Right. And the, the integration of dry and land and water is, is yes. very good. Yes. And the other one I've just been to visit is the, the Abrahamic house, which I think is three buildings. And whatever you think about, about them, uh, the synagogue, the church, and the mosque, they're all each a cube. Each is the same size. They're, they're white and they're beautifully made. Yes. And there's a, the public space between them is, is very well articulated. And they don't shout, Look at me. Right. They are, they blend together. They are very low key in the overall Abu Dhabi skyline. True. Compared, for instance, to the Louvre. You know, and sometimes you just see these pieces of architecture, like the House of Wisdom, I think, is another, another really gentle building in the city. Yeah. You could use, if you are going to use the word iconic, maybe those are the buildings you would use it for. But actually, it's become such a debased word. Hmm. And certainly the projects I work on are. The opposite of being iconic, they are they are buildings that disappear. And I think of ex-architects, the beautiful uh, wetland centre they they designed. It was it relatively low cost, low key building. And then when it got the Aga Khan Award in two thousand and nineteen, I was looking at Palladio, Palladio Villa at the time when I got a phone call to say that it, from the chairman of Public Works saying that it it had won the Aga Khan Award. I was so thrilled for them. And, and, and to have been a part of the project because it's a bit, and the reason it got the award is that because it disappears into the landscape and it respects this completely conserved landscape. It was erect and there was a conserved landscape and turned back into wetland, which is what it was originally, where the, the underground waters have come out uh, from the mountains and come out near the coast. And it's a mixture of saline and 
fresh water. And it changes all the year round, depending on what the water flow is, yep. mixing with the, with the salt, the saline water. And I think that buildings being discreet, I try to do it at Hafia, where the Mountain Conservation Centre, where you've got the spectacular landscape of the edge of the mountains meeting the coastal plain and very, you know, the acacia trees of the wood of the plain and the amazing colours in the rocks. How do you put a building in there? And so, you know, there I try to design it. That's a building I designed. And I tried to do that in such a way that, we're, that from the public's point of view, you're aware of the entrance and the exit. The rest of it, it's a building you look out of. The same lesson that ex-architect showed us at, at Wazik. Hopkins, on the other hand, did a building at Bahais, a group of little group of buildings at Jebel Bahais for a geology center there. Yep. Where whatever you did, whatever building you put there, it was going to stand out. It's on a very exposed treeless mountain slope. And so they took the forms, the, the forms of the fossils, and they put it together in such a way that in this barren, arid landscape, rocky landscape, it's almost like a, a, a space station that's landed. You know, it's very, in the right light, it's got a real Martian quality to it. It's sort of, so although it stands out as a piece of architecture, it fits its context beautifully. Samaya Dabas, the project she did at Malaya for the uh, archaeology museum, the archaeology centre around the Bronze Age tomb. You know, the most important building there is the Bronze Age tomb. Exactly. You know, it's, 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 it's not so much the actual It's four and a half thousand years old, you know, and, yes. you know, so you've got to respect it. And she did that beautifully and very elegantly. So, and it's a, it's a building that comes out of the landscape and embraces the tomb. So I think... There are so many different ways to achieve contextually appropriate buildings, but it, it's a very big challenge and many architects seem to avoid it and rather just go for the, the monolithic statement, look how clever I am and look how important my client is. We are iconic, as you say. <laughs> true, true. You, I think, I'm not going to make friends from this chat. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't think you need to. <laughs> I think that entire area, and again, this may seem a bit out of context for listeners kind of tuning in, but I find Maleha area, generally speaking, with the Hopkins building, with, uh, with the museum, with even the small interventions, you know, the ones that an architect have with the fuel stations um, across the road. So there's, there's clearly some kind of overarching vision, almost, I feel, kind of leading these projects. I, th I think we're, we're all heading in sort of parallel directions. <laughs> Shirouk and Sharjah Arts Foundation. Right, and, right, and right. Myself. We're all, we're all very passionate about the result and that it should be, should be something special. Right. And, you know, we, we try and work with interesting architects. Okay. I can't, you can't do it all yourself. Of course, uh, of course. It's, but it's striving for quality. Yep, yep. And there's no one answer architecturally. If you ask me about an architectural philosophy, I mean, I re I'm not sure I can, can give you one. Each, each, each project requires a different solution. And you work, you work with a different team. You work with a different client team. Um, if you're working with, uh, with wild animals, for instance, you know, you're working with people. There's a whole set of criteria. And I tell you, it was a lot easier dealing with geology because rocks don't bite and don't need to be fed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But, that is true. Know, they are quite static in and nature. It, you know, and if you deal with museums, you know, they've got their own, all their criteria that, you know, you've got to have really perfect internal environments that, you know, for the preservation of objects. Right. So, you know, each, each project has got a, a 
a different set of drivers behind it and depending upon the people who are putting it together. Right. And I think we also shouldn't forget the contractors who have to build what we design because at the end of the day, you know, getting the right materials and getting them put together well, you know, a, a building that has been however well thought out it is, if it's been put badly together. Yeah. And is never the same, and you know it. And you have to design for the skills of the contractor. You have to know what level of contractor you're going to have and make sure that you're building something that is buildable. Right. So I think the contractor's contribution is really important. I think you've touched upon a very interesting point because I don't think a lot of architects actually ever take that into consideration, although it may be quite obvious. I don't think most architects actually do that. And it just makes so much sense that you do. I mean, if you are going to, for example you know, build in a place where you probably know does not have a lot of competence with contractors, for example, or even access to materials or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, Particularly rural areas. Exactly. Wherever you are, you know, you don't have the same level of skills as you would find in in the city centre. Exactly, exactly. But even things like, you know, restriction of being able to transport materials or material sizes or, you know, things like that. Taking into account what a contractor can do, for sure, would you also say that to an extent, do architects need to manage client expectations? Do you think that's also equally important? I think the most, the most important component of client-architect relations is that the client trusts the architect. Right. When that trust slips, yes. projects get difficult. Right. So it's really important that the, that the architect understands that and, and, and maintains that trust. And then you can do a great deal if you've got the client behind you. And in terms of client expectations, you know, especially, you know, in Dubai has demonstrated, you know, everything is possible, only the impossible costs more. Yes. So if you're prepared to pay, you can do anything. It, but that's not the point. That's not what that's architecture is not about building the most biggest and the most expensive, whatever it is, you know, be it a, be it a, a skyscraper or a mosque. You know, it's, it's about building it beautifully. I mean, that's, and then, you know, again, I think, I think of Sameer Daba's mosque in Alcoz, you know, that. That's a beautiful mosque. It's beautifully made. And it's not, it's not big. It's not grand, but it's, you know, yeah, it's yeah. beautifully designed. So I think in terms of what are, what are client expectations? Well, I'm a client now. I've spent the last 15, 16 years of my life being an architect as a client um, yep. and working with architects. I have so many questions right now. <laughs> yeah, so I, it, <laughs> it's, uh, the, and the relationships change, you know, with the yep. successes and sometimes the failures, you know. You, yep. you, but the, I think I, I've always thought it, well, I was in practice. This has not come from my... It's so important to have the trust of it and support of your client. Yep. And you must also remember it's their money you're spending as yep. an architect. You, you've got to work within their budget, within their expectations, and you want the client to be happy at the end of the day. Right. True. And whenever I hand over a project, you know, finally, and, you know, the ruler comes and opens it, you know, I want him to be happy. Right. Because, I, you know, I hope that what... My vision of that project was, and what I've given him is what. what I hope it's what, aligned. The, yeah. That it's aligned, and he doesn't. That he is not disappointed. Yeah. Because you know it's his money. It's not my money that I'm spending as a client. I'm True. a client representative only. 
so it's, a, it's about trust, isn't it? And the, you work with people you trust, contractors, right. you work with consultants right. who've, got a, who, who've demonstrated, you know, they're, they're, that they, you work together very harmoniously. You, you've got, you're sharing values. Right. You're not, you're not, when you've got conflicts with, with your consultant, you know, it means you've not, you're, you're not sharing values. Right. I'm going to try and ask an obvious question, which I'm assuming a listener probably is now formulating as they hear you speak. I imagine that there are a lot of solopreneurs, small offices, boutiques, architects who run these, who are listening to you and are thinking, that sounds like exactly what I want to be doing, Peter. You are saying exactly what I want to be doing, but I'm not able to get clients like that. I'm not able to convey my architectural prowess the way that I would want to as a client, because you are now on the client side of things. When you look at architects who want to be involved with your projects, are there any particular things that you're looking for? Are there any red flags even, which would maybe you know push you the other way, for example? You're looking for a track record. Uh, I started a practice. 1980 and ran that practice for 22 years. It had a good name, had a good reputation. I would get invited to speak at some South African schools of architecture about our work and so on. So it must have had a decent, decent name. Um, and I worked with some very good architects as partners. I think it's really important that you start, you, you take on, you take on every a job, whether it's a house extension or a, or a house or villa, and you do it in the same way that you would do a much bigger job. You do right. it well because my, our, I think our philosophy was that every job should give you another job. So every job you do, you get another job out of it, directly or indirectly, because from the company that the person works for or from somebody else who sees the house or sees it published or uh, just word of mouth, someone says, you know, who, who would you recommend? So the idea that every job gives you another job. So you're, you balloon, your practice balloons. Right. And if you're, in, if you're in good times, you know, and there's plenty of work going on, there's a lot of work going on at the moment, you know, that's, that's a very positive process. It gets difficult when there's no money around, obviously, and that's what, for instance, what I saw ahead in Zimbabwe, that there would be much less investment in new building. Right. And you do it well. And I think one of the things that worries me is that architecture as fashion, that a lot of architecture seems to be done to get into the magazines to, it's a fashion statement. It's no longer actually solving a problem. So I have, a, I have a, uh, this, uh, this theory that we are trained as designers, which is a decision-making process. And that decision-making process is in place to solve problems. We are problem solvers. Yep. We should not be creating more problems than we are solving. True. And I see plenty right. of examples. Okay, it goes Fair the enough. other way. And I, so I, I look for, I look for, I look for successful projects and who's been responsible for them, and you know that then people say they've been, you know, they've worked well with them. You know, I, I, I work closely with Public Works. We overlap, right? Naturally, and I, uh, so you know, I, I, I get recommendations from them for, you know, people who have been, they found good to work with. Fair enough. And, you know, my experiences of architects and so on that I've worked with, you know, right. who've, you know, have we, you know, have we had a good process? Right. And you go back, you go back to the people who've given you a good service. 
True. As a client, from a client side. Right, right. It seems like such an obvious answer, right? I mean, do good work and more good work will come. And yes. that's how you attract good clients and so on and so forth. And don't worry that it's small. I mean, I think, you know, some of our local firms, um, Shape and uh, X Architects have start, started small, but look, at they're doing, they're doing big work now. And right. they, they attract work. Right. So don't be worried taking on small jobs. Okay. And uh, that because that's where it starts. And the, you know the problem is as your practice grows individually, you you lose a lot more control over it. Right. You know, True. Practice in Zimbabwe was never more than a total of about twelve people in the office, total staff. And that way, we could keep we managed to keep control of our you know design output, and you know a partner would be responsible for it right the way through from taking the brief. The right. first day, you know, to right. handing the keys over to the client at the end, Absolutely. and hopefully, you know, celebrating the, the opening. opening. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that's the other thing that's really important is continuity through the through the design and building process. That there are the key individuals, the, arch the key architects, the key engineers, the key skills in putting it together are there from the beginning to the end, and that you don't keep handing over at each stage to a different set of teams, which is the norm. Um, in the UAE, not yep. just Dubai, um, and I think is has a has a very negative effect because the people who actually supervise the construction of the building have no idea of what the motivation or drivers were uh, that caused the building in the first place. Right, right. I think I think there's a bit of um, a bit. I mean, it's a theory that I have. I think there's a bit of a social aspect to that as well, in the sense that uh, I can speak about Dubai because I've obviously you know spend my entire life there. I think the nature of designers, especially in the previous decade, was that it was quite a transient flow of yes. talent. Uh, and as such, there were a lot of designers which probably came in, you know, with the mindset of, oh, I'm probably going to be here for this project or I'm going to be here for the next couple of years. And even worse so were the designers that were on client side with the same mentality. And there was not a lot of future proofing happening. It was kind of like, you know, this works now and that's fine. And that then filtering, you know, downstream into designers that have silo teams, like you just said, I think it's a disastrous combination almost. Uh, no, I think, and I think this probably has a lot to do with it. Yeah. It's, you know, particularly, you know, designers came in as expats, whether they came in from Cairo or London. Right. And so it was short term. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, I think that I saw that in Zambia as well. Right. You know, people like myself come out and do, do a two year, maybe four years. And then like me, I moved on to Zimbabwe. But the reason I went to Zimbabwe is I knew that I very quickly could become resident. Right. And uh, in fact, I, you know, for 18 years, I was a Zimbabwean citizen. Right. It wasn't very useful in the end, you know, <laughs> the situation changed. Right. But it, it is, it, I think it's, it's that, that expatriate cycle. Right. Uh, and uh, and fluidity of employment. Right. Fortunately, I can now say that things are changing. I remember there was a time when I used to say that, oh, I'm born and raised here. People used to actually ask me, like, oh, really? Like, as if I was this, you know, extinct animal that they suddenly saw again. But not only are you seeing a lot more of that, but you're seeing a lot more design professionals who are like that, who have a been here a long time understand context but are also now looking at the future thinking that listen our practice needs to needs to deliver a certain type of project over a certain amount of years and they're looking at you know 
a lot more kind of into the future than they are just thinking about, oh, let's just do this here and this project here and that project there. And you can even see it in, you know, client vision, someone like Sharuk, for example, I know the kind of work that, you know, obviously they've done, but what they're looking to do as well is, is there's a lot of thought behind that. It's not kind of just, oh, we'll, we'll sort of cross that bridge when we get there. That's mm-hmm. not the mentality anymore, which is, which is great. I think there, there is another aspect, of course, now is that there are, an, there's an increasing number of Emirati architects who've been greatly qualified mm-hmm. and they're, they're bringing a new continuity. Absolutely. Um, and a very important one, yep. you know, and if anyone is going to establish architectural and appropriate architectural language, surely for the Emirates, surely it's going to be from the Emirati architects. Absolutely. So if you look at the work that Shape and X architects are doing, yep. you know, that's maybe that's where we should be asking that question. What is the architecture that these, these new firms are producing? And well, they're not so new firms anymore. They're, you know, they're, yep. they're well-established and, you know, that's important. I quite uh, humbly can say that I, my, my first ever exposure to uh, architecture, an architecture firm was funnily enough, ex-architects uh, did my first ever internship there, admittedly fairly short time, but yeah. Uh, so I've, I've kind of seen them grow almost as a spectator, which is, which is quite interesting. Kind of as we wind down the episode I'm trying to think how to frame this question, but essentially the crux of it is, so someone like yourself, obviously you've, you've had experience across multiple typologies. Obviously you've had, you've seen a very diverse range of projects and architecture, right? From low cost, low income housing to, you know, education to, you know, being, being with Gadge and now, you know, with, um, with his highness and, you know, your involvement with Shuruk and your experience from Africa, it's, it's, it's sort of all over the place in a sense, but it really gives you a very diverse outlook. And because of that, I think you'd be the right person to maybe answer this or at least, you know, give us a direction. There's a lot happening with architecture design in the country at the moment, as much as definitely I would say Sharjah is much ahead. I think there are a lot of pockets across the country which are actually catching up. I think we're at the stage where we may be making a pivot from maybe in the early 2000s, it was more about, you know, the biggest, the largest, the most iconic, if you may. And we're now making a pivot towards, you know, what's the best kind of architecture, what's the most sustainable, what's it's it's kind of going in that direction, I feel. So uh, I want to know from you, in your opinion, where do you think our industry of designers should be taking architecture? What, what, what should we be working towards at the moment? Well, you touched on one key word, sustainability. When I was working in Africa, those projects were intrinsically sustainable because we were looking at local skills, the most locally available materials, if we did a standard drawing for a rural market, for instance, we, we did a number of variations. You could do it with a thatched roof, yeah. a grass roof, or you could do it with a metal roof, yeah. a sheeted roof, you know. So we had to be, we had to choose the materials to be what was available at that site and what skills were there. You know, did they have masons? Did they have carpenters? Yeah. I think that it's really important now after this great flourish of extravagant building that UAE 
I wouldn't just say Dubai, Abu Dhabi has, and Sharjah has, we, you know, the various Emirates built towers and, you know, with reflecting glass and so on, completely unsustainable. And of course, with a limited life, I mean, Dubai is going to go through a massive replacement of all of its buildings and, um, and refurbishment of buildings because, the, you know, the facades have 20-year lifespan. Um, yep. And those are all going to come, all that building boom that from the noughties is all coming up now for renewal. Yep. Now, yep. that is an enormous budget to look yep. for. Never mind building new buildings. Right. So how do we build most sustainably? And particularly now, you know, with the, you know, in, in, with the climate crisis. Um, and I think just building, even without that, you know, we should, we should always be building responsibly. We haven't. Yeah, in the UAE, we've been a model of how to build a city overnight. Yeah, you know, in a, in, a, in a few years, creating an urban entity which is, in fact, you know, only works because of the motor car. Doesn't it works better for the motor car than it does for people? In fact, has been has been very openly admitted to. Kind of the you know the twenty minute city, the twenty minute master plan. It's 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 by, it's it's done exactly what it had to do, but unfortunately. The initial direction of the motor car probably not the best, I would think. So I think the key, the key for a successful environment and for us to be able to continue is to ensure that our buildings are designed and built sustainably. We need to really think very carefully about the materials we use. We need to make sure that they, we give them, we put an enormous amount of investment in for a building, but you know that. It's designed to be written off financially over, say, 30 years. Right. You know, that's not long enough. You know, I, I've just been looking in Sicily at some Greek temples, one of which is, is still in use as a cathedral. Right. Um, that was built two and a half thousand years ago. Right. That's what I call sustainable building. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it is. So, uh, yeah, I think we need to be building, uh, designing our buildings for as long a life as we can. We've got to look at the systems which require replacement, you know, what intervals the various systems require replacement. But when the whole cladding system, you know, has has only got a a warranty life of, you know, it is already leaking and letting in condensation and it's happening all over Dubai. And we know all the fire issues and the materials that are being used, uh, very, you know, inappropriate materials. We can't, that's extravagant. We cannot afford to build like that. Right. Just, and I think that the coming generation, young generation of architects is extremely aware of that. And I hope they have the care and the skills, you know, to be able to, to overcome those, those issues. As, as probably a part of that generation, I think we do. I can humbly say that I think we do. I think there's a lot more sensitivity being given to architecture now, which is which is brilliant to see. Intern Shweta, who's sitting right here, just finished her final presentation down at Harriet Watt in Dubai. And a lot of colleagues of mine had the had the privilege of being present there. And a key takeaway that we had from all the students was that it was very, very context-driven. It was very all about the site context and the end user. And it was not at all about ego or, you know, I want to completely stand out with my project or anything like that. And so it's, it's already kind of filtering from the education of an architect, 
uh, and I think someone like myself is kind of really elevating that as well, which which is quite promising. I'm quite excited actually about. Yeah, the I next was so, I was sorry to miss the uh, reviews. I was invited right. to be there, but I was traveling. Right, right. Looking at Greek temples. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Peter, kind of as a closing tradition, we have our previous guests ask a question to the future guest without knowing who they are or what they do. But obviously, they're more or less designers. So we have a question for you, which, uh, which will conclude the episode. You can feel free to answer it or not. It's entirely up to you. So the question from the previous designer is, if you could go back to the 20-year-old designer that is yourself, what would you tell him or her? Would it be advice or would you say nothing? You can take your time to answer it. There's no rush. It's a bit of a heavy question, I understand. <laughs> I would say for the 20-year-old, 20 year is still an undergraduate, the beginning of their career. And I would say, for me, there are two really important ingredients that must shape and inform your design. The first is passion. You must care passionately about the product, about how it's going to be made, not just as a piece of sculpture, as a piece of art, but even as a student, thinking of it as, you know, who's going to build this? How's it going to be built? but the passion particularly for solving the problems that the user has presented in giving you the brief and for the people who are going to use the building. So you can see, I may not be the youngest, but I'm still passionate. Absolutely. I have a young heart. And the second is integrity. My father said to me, is his, what drove him is always be true to yourself. And I think that is the key to professionalism. You must be true to yourself. You must be honest. With yourself, you must learn to trust yourself. You must always behave with the utmost integrity in regard to your relations with your client and the contractors, because you are responsible over the years. You will become responsible for millions and millions of dollars of other people's money yep. and how it's allocated, how it's spent, that everything that you design it's not yours. It actually belongs to your client. And you've got to make sure that their money is spent well during the construction process itself. You've got to certify the work and so on. So professional integrity is really important. So if I say passion and integrity are, are the keys, and if you let those waver, I think you will dilute the work you do and you will dilute the trust that will be placed in you. Do you think that's an answer? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think twenty-year-old uh, Peter Jackson would completely agree. That's an answer. Yeah, I think I think uh, I think that's that's applicable to pretty much all young designers. Passion and integrity. I like that very much. Peter, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I know that this has been an episode in the making for quite a while, and I am super excited that we were able to do this. Uh, on behalf of obviously the entire show, thank you so much. And we, I keep saying this, but I'm pretty sure we will have you on at some point in the future as well. I guess I kind of maybe as a, as a closing statement, if, if you could speak to any of the young designers out there, I know that we already talked about passion and integrity because you briefly mentioned that you also do a bunch of writing uh, and you do have 
experience in education as well. And for intern Shweta also. I know it can be quite confusing as, um, as, a, as an architecture student coming up, especially if you're studying in a place like Dubai, which maybe does not have the best variety of architecture, so to speak. How can an architecture student actually add value and depth to what they're studying? If that is too vague, probably, I'm not sure. Look at buildings. They're going to be, you know, what you're going to be working on during your career. So look at buildings, look at old buildings, look at new buildings, look at new buildings that you, that you like, some that you feel a resonance with going, what is it that why, why, what is it that attracts you to that building? What, why do you feel it's successful? Learn to communicate about buildings and also look at old buildings, look at, you know, whether they're two and a half thousand years old uh, or, or 200 years old, you know, they, there's always, you can always learn from just studying how things are put together, how they look, you know, how do they work? Do they work? Did they work for what they were designed for? Yeah. And so I think looking at buildings and very importantly, communicating. And that's why I started writing very early on, uh, maybe not very well, but, you know, and um, I found how to describe, learning how to de describe a building, learn to describe a historic building for an article. Hmm. You know, how do you describe that building in an articulate way? Because if you can articulate your thoughts about the building, you know, you, you're going to help you make articulate buildings. True, true, true. Well, there you go. I think that's an answer we can all be happy with. Peter, once again, thank you so much for your time. This was enlightening. A lot of food for thought, for me especially. Yeah, and um, thank you again. Well, thank you, Alan. That's, it was a... I was quite worried about this, but it's been a very enjoyable experience. <laughs> Trust me, I was a lot more worried. <laughs> and on that note, we will catch you guys next week. Fellow A-former, thank you so much for your time. If this episode added any value to you, please share it with anyone who may benefit. If you want to carry on the discussion, please get in touch with us over socials. We are at A-form show on the gram and hello at aform.studio on email. That is at A-form show on the gram and hello at aform.studio on email. Until next time, stay inspired.